Luke chapter 21, we'll be reading uh, beginning with verse 37. We're going to go down through verse 23 of chapter 22. Is that confusing enough for you? Uh, let's all stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Luke 21, 37, down through chapter 22, verse 23. It says, Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, he called. Uh, early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. Uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Father, we pray now that you would give us uh, wisdom as we seek to study your word, uh, that by reading we may understand, that by understanding we may obey uh, what it is that the Spirit of God has for us today. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing our journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, and we're beginning a new chapter, also a new section in the book. Uh, Luke is typically divided up into three or four large sections. Uh, the first several chapters focus on Galilee, the upper part of Israel, uh, where Jesus was raised and where he spent the first few years of his public ministry teaching, uh, performing miracles and things like that, uh, training his 12 apostles. Then you have chapters 9 to 19. That's really the big section in the book, uh, which is that journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. We've been on that for a long time now, uh, where Jesus is traveling down to Jerusalem, kind of stopping at each uh, village and town along the way. And he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's healing the sick. Uh, all, all along, he's headed towards Jerusalem, uh, where he knows he's going to be arrested and crucified. Then we have the last couple of chapters that we've been talking in, uh, basically chapter 20 and 21. They focused in on Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus' ministry in the temple, teaching day by day uh, the people there in Jerusalem. Really, a lot of it is his, his back and forth with the re religious leaders, rebuking them for their hypocrisy and their hollow religion. And now a dramatic shift takes place in chapter 22. 
from this point forward, all of the parables, all of the miracles, all of the teachings in the temple, all of that's done. Uh, now in chapter 22 and following, uh, what we have is basically the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Uh, that final prophecy that we studied back in the previous chapter about the judgment of, of God against Jerusalem, uh, that was really the end of Jesus' public ministry. And so this chapter, chapter 22, this is where Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus to the religious leaders. Jesus is arrested, he's put on trial, and in the very next chapter, he's hung on a cross to die. And the resurrection takes place in the beginning of chapter 24. So we're at 22 now. Uh, chapter 23 is basically the crucifixion story. And then 24 begins with the resurrection. So believe it or not, uh, we're going to be done with the book of Luke in about six or seven weeks, give or take. Some of you don't believe me right now, but we really will. Uh, so <clears throat> we're going to pick up the pace pretty dramatically over the next few weeks. I was looking ahead of my calendar and I saw, well, Easter's in a few weeks. I really like to be at the resurrection uh, by Easter. And uh, the resurrection is beginning of chapter 24. So that's going to be our goal, basically in three weeks to cover from here to chapter 24. If you want to make it a sermon series, you could call it Rushing to the Resurrection, uh, something like that. We don't have to call it that. I just like alliteration. Anyways, uh, it may be helpful, though, to do this because all of this material that we're going to cover over the next few weeks took place basically within a day or two. So this is a very fast-paced uh, next couple of chapters here. So it'll be good to have it all in our minds as we're wrapping up the book. Let's begin by looking uh, just for a minute at chapter 21, how it ends, because that sets up what comes next. Verse 37 of Luke 21 says, Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged in the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Okay, so this tells us what the daily routine looked like for Jesus basically throughout this week. Uh, he's been in Jerusalem. In the morning, early in the morning, he would come to the temple, and crowds of people would be there to meet him, and he'd begin to teach them. And then at night, he would slip away under cover of darkness and go to mount, the Mount of Olives, uh, also known as the Garden of Gethsemane. It's basically a garden with olive trees. It's right outside Jerusalem. If you go there today, by the way, the tour guys will tell you that there's trees there that are 2,000 years old, and they were there when Jesus was there. I don't know if I believe that, uh, but it's all still there. There's still a little garden there, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And so this was just kind of a quiet place where Jesus would go and hang out. He would pray. He would sleep there. And then in the mornings, he would come back into the city and meet the people in the temple. Uh, all of that becomes very important, as we'll see in just a minute. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says, The Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Okay, so Passover is now beginning. This is uh, an eight-day ceremony. There was feasting. There was uh, a lot of rituals and things we're not going to get into. Uh, that, that would be involved during these eight days. But I do need to tell you about two parts of the Passover week, because uh, they will help explain a lot of what we're going to run into here in the next couple of chapters. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament book of Exodus, you will remember that God sent plagues into the land of Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh uh, to let the enslaved Jews uh, leave. You remember that great story, let my people go, he kept saying, and God kept sending plagues and plagues, plagues after plague uh, to Pharaoh. And the very last of the plagues was the death of the firstborn. And you remember God had told all the people that they could survive this if they would follow his instructions, kill a lamb as a sacrifice, paint the blood over the door, uh, the doorposts of their house. If they did that, uh, the death angel would pass over their house and go to the next one. That's where the name Passover comes from. And so this is now an annual celebration of that event back in the book of Exodus. And so first you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we'll see in this section. This was 
basically a week in which you were not allowed as a Jew to eat any bread that had yeast in it. Uh, so it would be unleavened bread, which we would call basically a cracker. Uh, no softness to it. It was just a, a flatbread type thing. And so we'll see that in this section. Uh, Exodus 13, verse 6, you see some of the instructions here. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Uh, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territories. So uh, leaven or yeast was a symbol of sin. And so thus the bread that was to be eaten during this period of seven days was to be unleavened. Uh, and in case you're wondering, that is why during uh, communion, when we eat bread, it's not uh, leavened bread. It has no yeast in it. That's why we kind of eat like crackers, uh, if you will. Because here at the Last Supper, this is the very last Passover, uh, Jesus takes this annual meal and institutes it as the Lord's Supper or communion. Okay, we'll see that in a minute. I'm getting way ahead of myself, though. Uh, next thing you need to know about Passover is that this is when the animal sacrifices were made in Jerusalem. Okay, each household was to bring a lamb to the temple, a pure lamb with no spot or blemish, and that lamb was then killed by the priests. And uh, the Jews understood that the lamb was basically taking their sin on itself and dying in their place as an atonement for their sin. And of course, as Christians, after Jesus, we look back on that and we can understand that all of this was a picture of Jesus. It was a picture of the Lamb of God who would come and die on the cross, taking our sins on himself and dying in our place. And just in case anybody missed that point, uh, Jesus will actually be crucified during Passover week. So literally, uh, as the lambs are being killed all throughout the city of Jerusalem, Jesus will be hanging on a cross, taking our sins on himself. It's a great picture uh, that God was doing here. The timing is not a coincidence. Uh, God orchestrated all of this to take place at that time. So those are two aspects of Passover week you need to be aware of. First of all, the lambs being sacrificed for sin, and then the, the unleavened bread in that meal that we're going to see here uh, in this text. Verse 2 says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, but they feared the people. Now, we've already seen this uh, in the previous chapters. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the religious leaders hated him. Uh, they wanted him dead. And I'm not going to go back over all the reasons why. It's been mentioned many times in the last few chapters. I trust that you will remember that. But basically, tensions have been rising. Uh, they are getting more and more upset with Jesus uh, for various reasons. They're opposed to his ministry, and they want to kill him. But they have a problem, and you see it mentioned there. They're seeking to put him to death, but they are, they're, they're fearful of the crowds of people that are always around Jesus. And so if they come up to him in the middle of the day while he's uh, teaching in the temple, uh, they're afraid of a mob reaction that the crowds that are, are hanging on every word Jesus speaks are going to protect him. And so these religious leaders, they want Jesus dead, but they need, to, they need an opening. Uh, they need an opportunity. They need to find Jesus alone, uh, sometime when he is away from the crowds of people. They're looking for an opportunity where Jesus is vulnerable, and they can arrest him, and they can take him to the Roman authorities without the rest of the people knowing but the problem is nobody knows where Jesus goes at night. This is why it was mentioned at the end of the last chapter. Uh, he's in the temple. He's in the public eye all during the day. But at night, he slips away to this little garden on the Mount of Olives that nobody knows about. That's his little private place to hang out at night. And so the religious leaders, they don't know where he goes at night. But Jesus' 12 apostles do know where he goes. And one of them offers to, uh, to give them this information for a price. You see in verse 3 of chapter 22, it says, Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. 
And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And this is what will eventually lead to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He is betrayed by one of his closest followers into the hands of those who hate him. And I can imagine the, the chief priests and scribes, they're meeting together, they're, they're thinking, how can we formulate some sort of plan uh, to get Jesus away from the crowd so that we can take him and arrest him? And in that meeting walks Judas Iscariot, and he says, how much will you give me uh, if I tell you where Jesus hangs out at night? And eventually they agreed to give him 30 pieces of silver. And through that act of betrayal, Jesus would be condemned to die. Now, I want to take a step back and just look at this through the eyes of a few different characters in the story. Uh, we already know that the religious leaders hate Jesus. They've wanted him to be dead for a long time. And so we know their motivation here. But what about Judas? Why would one of the 12 apostles betray Jesus like this? And the answer comes down to one thing. Jesus, uh, Judas loved money more than Jesus. Looking back at John chapter 12, this is the story where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. And I want us to focus in on Judas, especially in the story and, and the role that uh, what we can learn about him from this. Verse 1 says, six days before the Passover, so this is a week prior to uh, basically Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Uh, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so here we find out a lot about Judas. Uh, we find out that Judas was the treasurer of the apostles. He was put in charge of the money. Uh, just like any ministry, obviously money is necessary. Jesus and his apostles, they're traveling from town to town. They're not working a job. And so they had financial support. Uh, you may remember back in chapter 8 of Luke, it says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming, bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And some women also who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, uh, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so here we see that people, uh, some wealthy people, were contributing uh, to the ministry of Jesus and the twelve apostles. They had funding from several people. And the one who was handling all of those finances was Judas Iscariot. And as we just read in John chapter 12, Judas was a thief. Uh, he used to help himself to the money bag. And so when he sees Mary anointing Jesus' feet with this expensive ointment, uh, he's upset about it because he's thinking, man, I wish we would have sold that and you know, given the money to the poor, basically put the money in our, in our money bag so that I could get a cut out of that. I could have made a lot of money on that expensive ointment. Judas loved money more than Jesus, and he considered it a waste to use this ointment on Jesus. Now, let's jump over to Matthew 26. This is a parallel account of the same story, and I want you to notice a detail here. Verse 7 says, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flax, a very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, 
Why this waste? But it could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And again, we know from John's account, this is Judas talking. Okay, verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So this was all about money for Judas. He was a thief. He would routinely steal from their funds. And this story where this lady, uh, basically in his mind, wastes the ointment on Jesus instead of selling it so he could take some of it, this made him so upset that he went to the chief priest and said, how much will you give me for Jesus? I can take you to him at a vulnerable moment. Just give me some cash. And so the religious leaders, they want Jesus to die because they hated him. Uh, Judas played his role in betraying Jesus because of his love of money. Uh, now let's talk about Satan, because we're told in verse 3 of our text that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, uh, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. So Satan uh, implanted this idea in Judas's mind to go and betray Jesus. Now why would Satan want Jesus to die? I mean, doesn't he know that Jesus' death was the means by which God would save us? Doesn't Satan know that Jesus had actually come to give his life as a ransom for many? I think he did. Uh, remember the temptations of Jesus. Satan told Jesus, all of the kingdoms of the world will be yours if you just bow before me. He's trying to uh, give him what he came for without going to the cross. He's tempting him to avoid the cross. He knew that if Jesus went to the cross, that death would be defeated. And so he tried to tempt Jesus to avoid it. Uh, also, remember in Matthew 16, it says, From that time, uh, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of men. I don't think Jesus is referring to Peter here as Satan, but he's saying uh, that the thought Peter had just voiced was from Satan. Okay, Satan was tempting Jesus through Peter to avoid the cross. Now, so, so Satan doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross. He doesn't want him to uh, fulfill his mission, why he had come to earth and redeem mankind. So then the question is, why is it that in chapter 22 of Luke, Satan enters Judas and gives him the idea to betray Jesus. Why would he do that? Well, I think the answer is simple. God wanted Satan to do it. Now, this is hard for us to understand, but God is sovereign over all of his creation, including Satan and the demons. Uh, remember all of those, those times in Luke's gospel where Jesus would cast out demons from people. Uh, the demons had no choice but to leave. Jesus would command them and they had to obey. Sometimes they'd be shrieking and uttering blasphemies while doing it. But when Jesus spoke a word, the demonic forces uh, could not do otherwise. Jesus had power and authority to control the demons. And I think the same is true of Satan. If we go to the book of Job, for example, uh, Satan has to get uh, permission from God before he does anything to Job. 
Uh, he comes to God and says, you know, I don't think Job really loves you. If you uh, mess up his life a little bit, he's going to betray you. And, 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 and God tells Satan, okay, go ahead. I give you permission, but don't hurt him physically. Uh, then Satan comes back to God and he says, well, I think if I hurt him physically, then he'll deny you. And, and God says, okay, well, you can hurt him physically, but don't kill him. Uh, what does that show us? God sets the parameters by which Satan is allowed to operate. Satan's not a free agent doing what he wants. Uh, we have this idea sometimes that God and Satan are like equal powers dueling it out, and that's simply not true. Uh, God has authority over Satan, and God uses Satan at times to accomplish his purposes. And so I don't think Satan wanted Jesus to go to the cross. And in fact, many times throughout the Gospels, he tried to get Jesus not to. But here, when he gives this thought to Judas to betray him, I think he's acting under the authority of God. Uh, by the way, none of this is to say that Judas is somehow innocent, uh, like he's just a pawn being used by outside forces, because we've already seen uh, Judas was a fraud from the beginning. He was a thief. Uh, he was a scoundrel from the very start. And so God uses Satan. God used this thief Judas in order to accomplish the redemption of humanity through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, that's hard to grasp, and it leads to a lot of questions that I don't have time to get into right now. But I will give one illustration uh, that perhaps will be helpful. Uh, how can you have Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus for one reason, uh, Satan involved in that act as well, and God ultimately guiding the whole thing for a different reason? Uh, now, here's the best analogy I could think of, and it comes from Star Wars. So this is the part of the sermon where I cut on, put on my uh, cool, trendy pastor hat and reference a movie that's almost 20 years old. Uh, Star Wars Episode Three. this is the last of the prequels, uh, which means it's the last one you should ever watch. Uh, this is the one where Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader. If you're not familiar with Star Wars, I'm sorry. We'll get back to the Bible in a minute. But uh, Anakin is a good guy. Just, just follow this. He's a good guy. He turns into a bad guy. Okay, He turns into Darth Vader, uh, this evil villain of Star Wars. Now, for those of you who are familiar with this, there are various people involved in the story that contribute to Anakin turning to the dark side. Uh, first of all, you have Anakin himself, and his motivation was his love for his wife. He loves Padme, he wants to save her from dying, and this becomes his weakness uh, that causes him to turn to the dark side. Then you also have the Emperor uh, who was involved in this. He's manipulating Anakin the whole, the whole movie. He's manipulating him, putting these thoughts in his mind, and tricking him. Uh, to turning evil. Now, his motivation was completely different. Uh, the emperor didn't care about Anakin's wife. Uh, he just wanted Anakin as a pawn, as a tool on his side. Uh, he wanted a powerful ally. Okay, now let's think about one more person who was involved behind the scenes making all of this happen. George Lucas, okay, the guy who wrote the script for Star Wars. Uh, he, he ultimately is the reason that Anakin turned to Darth Vader because he wrote it into the story that it would happen. And he directed the whole storyline. Okay, so that's, that's maybe not the best comparison, but hopefully it'll help. Judas loved money. The religious leaders, they hate Jesus. Uh, Satan is involved, moving Judas to betray Jesus. And all of them are acting under the sovereignty of God who is writing the script. And if you doubt that, look at Acts chapter 4. Uh, this is a prayer of Christians here in Acts 4. And it says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So when we look at all that Judas Iscariot did, all that the religious leaders did, all that the government officials did, everybody who played a part in the crucifixion of Jesus, 
We ought to see God's hand involved in all of that. The betrayal, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, all of it was predestined by God. And his hand was moving people around to make sure that this happened. God ordered Satan to implant this idea in Judas's mind. God orchestrated every detail to make sure that it happened and to make sure that it happened during Passover in Jerusalem. All of the symbolism working out perfectly according to his plan. All of it was God's plan to save us from our sins. Now, the prophet Isaiah had written of Jesus hundreds of years before in chapter 53. He said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. All of this was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus' death on the cross was how God would redeem us from our sins. And as Jesus died, he bore the punishment that we all deserve. This is the core of Christianity. This is the foundational truth of our faith, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. And because of how important this is, God left us with a reminder, something that we would do occasionally to remind us of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And here is where we get to communion. Verse 7 of our text says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. This would be kind of awkward to do if you just think about it. You see a guy carrying a jar in the middle of the street and you just kind of follow him to his house. Uh, that's what they told him to do. Uh, Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room uh, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. By the way, it's very likely that this was a predetermined plan by Jesus, that he had set this up with the owner of the house, because obviously, uh, first of all, you see the man was expecting him. He had already prepared a room uh, for Jesus and the 12 apostles. But Jesus had to be covert at this point. He knows not only are the religious leaders wanting to kill him, but Jesus is well aware, as we'll see, that Judas is on their side and that he's looking for an opportunity to betray him when he's alone. And so he doesn't want Judas knowing where they're going at this point. 
Uh, he sets up this place and he sends two of his disciples ahead of the rest to prepare the meal. And then they head there afterwards. And after the meal was finished, Jesus is going to head over to the Mount of Olives. We won't see this today. This will be next week uh, where he will be arrested. Uh, Judas will betray him there. So this is all that same night of his betrayal. Verse 14 says, when the hour came, he reclined at table. So they're eating the Passover meal and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now that is a very significant uh, statement. The Passover is about to be fulfilled, Jesus says. And he tells them it's going to happen when he suffers. He knows what's ahead of him. He knows he's going to the cross. And just like a lamb was killed as a substitute to atone for sins uh, in Judaism, Jesus would be killed as the substitute for us all. The sacrificing of lambs was a symbol of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it would be fulfilled uh, when he made that final and ultimate sacrifice for sins. And so this is the last supper of Jesus, as it's uh, been commonly called. But it's more than that. It's not just his last meal before he dies. It's also the last legitimate Passover. And the symbol would be fulfilled. There would be no more need to kill lambs during this week and offer them as sacrifices because all of that was merely pointing to the death of Jesus on the cross. The author of Hebrews explains in chapter 10, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the, the sacrificing of animals throughout the Old Testament was not actually taking away anybody's sins. It was simply a, 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 a shadow of the reality that was to come. Verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased, uh, I'm sorry, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Uh, so he's saying there very clearly, killing your lamb once a year during Passover, this doesn't save anybody. It was a symbol of the one who would come and lay down his life for all of our sins. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so this death on the cross would be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament signs and symbols. Those pure lambs that were sacrificed was an image of the sinless Lamb of God who would be sacrificed to save the world. John the Baptist made this explicit in John 1.29. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus ate this last supper with his apostles, it was the last Passover. Uh, that symbol was about to be fulfilled uh, later on that day and the next day, basically. That symbolism of the, the sacrifice of Jesus was about to be fulfilled. It would no longer be needed to be done. But Jesus gives us a replacement symbol. God loves symbols. All throughout the Bible you see this, uh, that he loves giving a truth through pictures and images. And so here the Lord's Supper, or communion as we may call it, was instituted as a reminder of Christ's death on the cross for us. Verse 17 says, he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that I will now, uh, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, is poured out, uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, those words uh, should sound familiar. If you've been here for a while, we read uh, Paul's quotation of this very text every time that we take communion. And what we're doing is exactly what Jesus told us to do here. Uh, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, take unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine and eat and drink as a memorial of the death of Jesus on the cross. The body of Christ that was broken and the blood that was shed. But I want us now to notice just two words there in verse 20. New covenant. Uh, Jesus is here instituting a symbol of the new covenant which would begin after his death and resurrection. Uh, the word covenant probably is not one that you use very often, so let me help you with that. It's synonymous with the word testament. When you think of Old Testament, New Testament, it's the same word as covenant. In fact, in the King James, uh, in this very text, it says, this is the New Testament in my blood, uh, which is given for you. And so a covenant or a testament is an agreement between two parties. It's a pledge. It's a, a promise of a relationship. We might call it a contract, though that sounds a little, I don't know, it doesn't sound quite, quite right. Uh, but it's an agreement between God and his people. Uh, we could also say there are, there are other covenant relationships. For example, uh, the church is a covenant relationship, right? Uh, we covenant together to follow Christ together, to hold one another accountable. That's what church membership is. It's covenanting together as a, a body of believers. Another covenant would be marriage. Uh, marriage is a covenantal relationship. It's when two people pledge themselves to one another. And we say certain vows publicly agreeing to remain faithful and to love and care for each other. And the covenant of marriage there uh, also has its own symbol, uh, the wedding ring. Uh, by the way, in case you're wondering why I don't have a wedding ring, I lost it in the ocean a couple weeks ago. I ordered one. It's coming in. Uh, but the, the wedding ring that I normally have on uh, is a symbol. It's a sign of a covenant. Uh, it tells everybody around you that I, I'm, I'm in a covenant relationship with someone else. And so it's a picture of that covenant. In a similar way, God has made covenants with his people. Uh, first, you have the Old Covenant or the Old Testament with Israel. Uh, God promised to give the land of Israel to the descendants of Abraham. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, had a special relationship with the Jewish people. That covenant was instituted on Mount Sinai. And there were all sorts of conditions of the covenant. For example, the Ten Commandments, uh, rules that God gave them, literally written in stone, saying, if you do this, then I will be your God, you'll be my people. This is our agreement. And Israel broke that covenant repeatedly. Uh, ultimately, nobody was able to perfectly keep the old covenant. And so God was now instituting a new covenant through Christ. Uh, anyone who would turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus could have their sins forgiven and could enter into a relationship with God. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are members of this new covenant with God through Jesus' death and resurrection. And just like marriage has the wedding ring, the old covenant had uh, symbols like circumcision or animal sacrifices, so the new covenant has a couple of symbols, uh, baptism and communion. Uh, baptism is sort of like when you make your wedding vows publicly uh, and you're, you're saying, I'm going to join this covenant relationship. That's what kind of a baptism is. Uh, you're, you're publicly telling everybody that I identify with the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I'm, I'm pledging myself to live for him. And then communion is sort of like the wedding ring. 
Uh, it's an image to remind you of the body and blood of Jesus, which was given for your sins, and it reminds us of our commitment to follow Christ. Uh, pictures have this effect on us. They often stir our memories and emotions. I know for me, there's certain pictures that as soon as I see them, they, they take me back to a certain time in my life, a certain memory that I have. Uh, the one that came to mind as I was thinking about this was the Twin Towers. Uh, anytime I see the Twin Towers with that cloud of smoke around them, it takes me instantly back uh, to 2001, and I remember everything that I was thinking and feeling then. Uh, that's sort of what uh, the Lord's table is. Maybe you have a, a picture of a loved one that has passed away or a certain place that is memorable to you. And as soon as you see that picture, it kind of takes you back. And you kind of relive that memory. That's what communion is supposed to be. Every time we take the bread and the cup, we are to remember the love of Jesus that was displayed for us on the cross as he died in our place. And so Jesus commands us, do this in remembrance of him. And in the book of Acts, you'll see that after Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples did this regularly. Uh, they would take the bread and the cup, they would eat and drink as a memorial of Christ's death. Uh, let's wrap up the text here, beginning verse 21. Jesus says, after giving this symbolism of the Lord's table, he says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He knows about Judas Iscariot. He knows what he's plotting. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to die just like God wants me to. God's orchestrating this. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas will be judged for the role that he played in this betrayal because he sold out Jesus for money. And then verse 23 says, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. By the way, Judas Iscariot at that point, if you read the other Gospels, he was asked to leave. Uh, Jesus tells Judas, what you're going to do, go ahead and do it. And Judas gets up and leaves. Uh, you could call that the first excommunication in the New Testament. Uh, excommunication is when we remove somebody from membership in a church, but it literally means to no longer allow them to take communion with the group. That's where excommunicate uh, comes from. You're, you're forbidding them from the Lord's table. They're no longer welcome to eat the meal with the rest. And so in this case, uh, Judas had been a part of their group. He had been uh, formally recognized as one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And here at this point, Jesus removes him from their fellowship and restricts him from eating with them at communion. I mentioned that to you uh, just as one of many uh, indicators throughout the New Testament of a connection between membership in a local body and communion. Uh, we call it, of course, church in the New Testament. Uh, when somebody joins a church family, they are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. In the event that somebody is removed from membership because of unrepentant sin in their life, uh, they would no longer be allowed to take communion. Now, we've never had that happen at our church, okay? So it's not like we have a problem right now. But that, that does happen in church life sometimes uh, where someone is removed from membership for various reasons. And in such a case, they would not be allowed to take communion anymore. Uh, notice verse 23, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And they didn't all look at Judas. Nobody suspected him. Instead, they started saying, I wonder who it is. I wonder who it's going to be that betrays Jesus. And this is very convicting uh, to think about. Judas Iscariot was a fraud from the beginning, but he was convincing. Uh, he was in it for the money. He was taking from the bag every chance that he got, but they all trusted him. Uh, the fact that Judas was made treasurer uh, seems to imply that he really had their trust. They thought he was one of us. He's on our side. And all the while, he was robbing them blind. And then when he realized that there was this opposition to Jesus coming and there would be danger if he stayed with him, he devised this plan to betray Jesus for money. But nobody knew it. 
Even here, after Judas had already talked to the religious leaders and he was actively seeking for an opportunity where he could betray Jesus when he was alone, even then, the, 11, the other 11 disciples had no idea that it was him. But Jesus knew. Judas Iscariot shows us that it is possible to be among followers of Jesus without possessing true love for Christ. You may be here this morning in church and pressing every one of us. We can fool each other pretty easily, but nobody fools Jesus. He knows who his true followers are and who the fakes are. Judas Iscariot is the image of one who lives a duplicitous life. Everyone thought that he was a genuine disciple. And in Matthew 27, we find out how Judas Iscariot's story ended. It says, this is after Jesus had been arrested and was condemned to death. It says, Judas uh, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed and went and hanged himself. That money that he had gained from his betrayal failed to satisfy him. And so he threw it in the temple, and he killed himself. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And I have to think, as Paul is writing these words, he's got to be thinking of Judas Iscariot. Verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And so the question for each one of us is, are we the real thing? Are we fakes like Judas? Do we put on a, a show of spirituality on Sunday, but in our hearts we have no real for, uh, love for Christ? And as we take the bread and the cup today, before we leave, this would be a good opportunity for each one of us uh, to examine ourselves and repent of any sin in our heart that we're hiding, that we're holding on to. If Judas could come back from the dead today, he would tell you it's not worth it. It's not worth it to live a duplicitous life. Whatever it is that you're seeking after, instead of pursuing Christ and his will for your life, let go of that today.